What exactly does it look like when an outsider becomes an insider? What's that like? What's it like to be an outsider, first of all? And what happens, actually? What changes when an outsider is transformed and translated into an insider? And listen, honestly, it's, it's hard to know which story to go to because that dynamic is rehearsed all over the Bible, all throughout scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, anywhere you look, you're going to see example after example after display. Uh, But this is a really good one. This one really thrills my heart to look at. And so that's why I chose to look at this today. And I have a few slides, hopefully, that will help us follow along. Because if you're like some people, you may not be that familiar with the story of Mephibosheth. He's an Old Testament guy. He's tucked away into a narrative uh, and he doesn't get much airtime. He doesn't, because he's an outsider. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him, um, but it says enough to where we can draw principles from this story and really know why God included it in the Bible. Um, so here's the backstory, okay? We won't go, there's so much Old Testament scripture, I don't, I don't want to uh, give too much scripture. I know that sounds crazy. Can you give too much scripture? Well, sometimes you can. Because some stories are chapters and chapters, and if I never get around to explaining what it means, I haven't preached a sermon. So sometimes it's helpful to summarize. Way back in 1 Samuel 4, there's a little bitty narrative tucked away, and it says this. It says, King Saul had a son whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan had a son whose name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was in the royal bloodline of Israel. He was King Saul's grandson. King Saul happened to be David's enemy. You guys knew that, right? He and David were enemies. Jonathan, who was Saul's son, he and King David were best friends. So Mephibosheth was David's best friend's son, but David's worst enemy's grandson. And tucked away in that little narrative in the Old Testament, we read something like this. When Mephibosheth was five years old, and his father and his grandfather were fighting in a war away from the kingdom, word came that the battle was over, and that Saul had been slain, and Jonathan had been slain. Now you can imagine, if the king and the heir to the king, who's next in line, are slaughtered, there's an uproar, there's an uprising, there's a panic, and everyone's wondering, who's who's going to ascend the throne? Who's next? So the Bible says, in a panic, the nurse that took care of Mephibosheth ran and scooped him up and took off running, and do you remember what happened? She fell down, and Mephibosheth fell with her, And it says he was irreparably damaged in his feet. He became a cripple. He was lame. He was damaged permanently for the rest of his life. So things radically changed for him at just five years of age. He became a cripple. And it's really hard to understand without living in the ancient Near East in in biblical times, what it would have meant to have been a cripple. You would have been absolutely dependent on other people. There would have been spiritual and religious implications for that. You could only go so far into the courtyard of the temple. You couldn't worship. You would suffer to be involved in community. You would be considered an outsider. Of course, some people would probably ridicule and hold you at arm's length. You would have been considered an outsider. And then also, to be in King Saul's bloodline, you would have been considered an enemy. So Mephibosheth, from the age of five, he's considered an outsider, physically uh, and really socially. He's born in the wrong family, and he became a cripple. So that's what this story is all about. But something changed. Something changed in 2 Samuel chapter 9, as you heard when Eli read. The king summoned him and invited him to live with him forever in the palace. So what happened? What is this all about? This is all about 
a radical promise that King David made way back in the Old Testament with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. A promise they made that's called, do you know what a promise is called in the Bible? A really powerful, radical promise. It's called a covenant. It's called a covenant. And I want to put a slide up to show you a passage. This is a passage, and actually I could have picked three different passages. This is just the one I chose because Jonathan and David made a pact. You remember when Saul was trying to kill David and he and Jonathan became best friends and they swore to one another. It says they loved one another and they swore to protect one another, to bless one another, and to never forsake one another. And this is one of those times. Check this out. So Jonathan came to David and he said, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That word, steadfast love, is the word hesed in Hebrew. And it means covenantal faithfulness. It's a never stopping, never breaking, never giving up, always and forever love that you read about in some of the children's story Bibles that I love. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That's where it comes from. It comes from God. That I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. That's where covenants come from, love. Just like a marriage covenant arises from love. His love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So that's what a covenant is. That's God's covenantal faithfulness, okay? And we get an outline, really, in this story. What does covenantal love do? How does it operate? What kind of power does it wield? Well, here's our outline for today from this passage. Three things that covenantal love does. This chesed. Number one, can you see this? Covenant love seeks us out. It seeks us out. The second thing it does is it surprises us. Covenant love surprises us. And the third thing that it does, and this is the greatest thing at all, it secures us. So it seeks us out, it surprises us, and it secures us. First of all, it seeks us out. Let's talk about this. Notice who initiates this. In this story, 2 Samuel 9, what's it say? And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Do you know what David is doing? David is looking back and he's remembering the covenant that he made with Jonathan. This always forever, unbreaking, never giving up, unfailing love. And he's saying, I want to express love to the family that I made a covenant with. So who, what's the source of this love? Is it Mephibosheth? Did he do something noble and outstanding that merited David uh, initiating this action? No. Mephibosheth didn't do anything. This is David. David initiates this. And you know what? That's a real clear picture of what salvation is really like. Because the Bible says that in 1 John 4.19, it says this, God loved us first, right? It says, it says something like this, we love him because why? Because we're amazing, right? And we have love flowing out of us naturally. No, it says we love him because he first loved us. God initiates this kind of covenant love that this is just a small picture. This is a micro picture, a microcosm of what God's covenantal love is like. Because look, this is offensive to some people to hear this, but do you know the Bible actually says that there are no one righteous? There are none righteous, no, not one. And it says this, no one seeks after God. 
Man, that's a tough truth. That'll get you fired in some churches for saying that from the pulpit. But that is in the Bible. It's in Romans. It's in Romans chapter 3. It says no one seeks after God. And that's terrible news, isn't it? Because it shows us for, for who we are. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sin. And what do dead people do? They rot. They don't make resolutions. They don't seek after righteousness. Dead people wither and languish and die. But the good news is this. Even though we don't seek after God, did you know the Bible also says that God seeks after sinners? Isn't that good news? Man, you've got to have both of those together. You can't just harp on, nobody seeks God, nobody seeks God, this is awful, this is terrible, and we're hopeless. Well, yeah, yeah the Bible does say that, but don't forget the good news. You've got to get the good news in there, you've got to get it in. God seeks after sinners. The Bible says God seeks after true worshipers. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to add worshipers to his choir. And that's what this is a picture of. King David initiates this. Listen, the king initiated this, not the cripple. Not the cripple. He's living far away. In fact, this is really amazing in Hebrew, the way this whole thing is worded. Mephibosheth is actually living in a place called Lodabar. You know what that word means in Hebrew? It means literally nowhere. Nowhere. One translation says land of no pasture. Land of no pa not pastor, pasture. And this is a, a land and a time when for the economy to work, there's got to be sheep, there's got to be cattle. So he's poor, he's isolated, he's living alone, he's living in fear, he's paranoid probably, he's living in the middle of nowhere. And you know what? I know a lot of people just like that. Let me ask you a question. Does it sound like Mephibosheth is living the life, man? Does that sound like the abundant life that everybody wants to live? No. Because listen, he's not an idiot. He's 20 years old now, and he knows, I am the king's enemy. My grandfather tried to kill the king for no just cause dozens of times. And I'm the only living survivor on this side of the family. And you know what? That means trouble because this is not like the presidency of the United States. You know, when a new president gets elected and the old president's term is expired, we still follow them and the media talks well about them most of the time. You know what they're doing, you know where they're living, you know what their kids are doing, you know, we, look, we know what the Bush kids are doing, we know what Hillary Clinton's uh, daughter is doing, we know what Obama's kids are doing, and they're fine, they're secure, man, for the rest of their life. If you're a president or the offspring of a president, you're set for life. Not in the ancient Near East, because you didn't, f you didn't finish a term, you got whacked. The only reason you weren't king any anymore is because somebody killed you or you died of natural causes, and in this case... Saul was David's enemy and he was dead. So you know what? Mephibosheth knew, he knew, if David ever finds me, I'm toast. He didn't know anything about this covenant that his father had made with David. So this doesn't sound like the abundant life to me. You know what it sounds like to me? A witness protection program. I mean, he, he is essentially uh, living in self-exile. He has banished himself. You know, here's Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and here's Mephibosheth, once an heir to the throne, and he's living on the edges of the kingdom. He's hiding from the gaze of the king. Man, what a way to live your life. What a way to spend your life on this earth, hiding from the king, when there's an empty place at the table, and when the king would love to lavish you with his grace and his mercy and his love. That's like the witness protection program. Do you guys know much about that? I've been reading about that because I'm really curious about it. 
I'm curious about all things criminal. Craig always makes fun of me. I don't know where the, the fascination or the obsession comes from. Um, but witness protection program, you know, sometimes people are in the wrong place at the wrong time and they see something go down. They see a bad business and sometimes it's mafia related and the mafia leader, before he whacks somebody, turns just in time to see you, the witness, right? And you are called to testify in a court of law against that mafia leader, what he did. And everybody knows, <laughs> I didn't hear that, but I'm sure it was funny. <laughs> Everybody knows that if you testify openly in court, you're next on the list, buddy. You're going to get whacked. You're going to disappear. You're going to be a speed bump or in a foundation somewhere in a building in New York City. So what happens? You get relocated, and it's not anywhere where you want to go. And you get a new identity, and it's a false identity. You get a fake name. You get a fake location. You can never be yourself. Your whole life is a lie. If you want to start up a romantic relationship, you can't tell the truth about who you really are. Your kids have to go to a school. They're undercover. All their information's changed. And listen, you live the rest of your life. This is the thing that fascinated me the most. I don't know why it fascinated. It's sad. The rest of your life, you live in fear. Every knock at the door, you're wondering, is this it? Did they find me? Every time you turn the key and your ignition, you're wondering, is it wired? Every time you see somebody staring at you at Starbucks... I mean, paranoia, fear, absolute paralysis. Now tell me you don't think that's what Mephibosheth's life was like. You know what he would have been like? He would, he would have viewed King David or anybody in the palace the same way we view a policeman on I-4 when we see him. Seriously. Please don't see me. Please don't follow me. Please leave me alone. Please don't bother me. And you know, can I be honest with you? That is exactly the way a lot of people view God. Because they have a total misunderstanding of who God is and what He has done for them. Most people are so afraid of what God is going to do to them that they totally miss the beautiful thing about what God has done for them. That keeps a lot of people out of the kingdom. It does. They view God as their enemy. Please don't, please don't bother me, God. Please leave me alone. I've got all this freedom over here. That's what people think. That's the myth. That's the mirage. I'm living my life in freedom, man. This is wonderful. I'm autonomous. No, you're not, dude. You're living in Lodabar, no man's land. You're exiled. There's a place at the table for you, but you're living on the outskirts of the kingdom. There's no security for you. There's no joy. There's no stability. There's no power. You're just eking out a meager existence, just waiting for the hammer to drop. That's how a lot of people live their life. Hey, I lived my life that way for 22 years, just waiting on the day, kind of doing what I could to keep God at bay, trying to have little spurts of obedience where I could pay him off, but knowing in my heart, one day, the hammer's going to fall, and I'm going to stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God, and I'm done. That's what I thought for most of my life until I encountered the gospel and dined at the table with the king, and I've been there ever since. That's a lot of people that I meet every day. There's a king waiting, but they're so afraid of what God is going to do to them that they miss what God has done for them. And again, if you were somebody like Mephibosheth in that day, it would be double. The pain would be double. Because listen, they didn't have, they didn't have insurance claims back there. They didn't, you couldn't start a GoFundMe for Mephibosheth, Okay to get some food on the table and get cared for. No, he was living in a land with no pasture, no crops, 
probably having to beg for every scrap of food he had, probably in hiding, probably wore disguises, probably kept his identity hidden. He was born in the wrong family. He was an enemy of the king by nature, and he was far from the king, far from the capital city, far from fellowship. But then one day, out of the clear blue sky, an invitation from the king came. Can you imagine? What would you think? You're Mephibosheth. It's been 20 years. You're doing okay. You're probably going to eke out your existence and then you're going to die, but it'll be okay. And then there's a knock at the door and it's an ambassador from King David. And he says, hey, King David wants you to come to the palace now. He wants to have a word with you. What would you be thinking? You'd be afraid, wouldn't you? I would be. You'd be thinking it's like the Hunger Games when you go to the capital city. It ain't good. This is the beginning of the end. But listen, David initiated this. The king initiated this. And notice what he says. Look what he says. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, Is there anybody worthy? Is there anybody in my kingdom that's just an outstanding citizen that I can just slap this VIP button on them and we can give them a trophy? That's not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world. No. What David says is there anybody, anybody, if you have a pulse, you qualify. In fact, he is directly seeking out his enemies. Look at this. Isn't this counterintuitive? David says, find me a member of the fiercest uh, enemy's family that I've ever known and bring them to me because I want to shower them with covenantal faithfulness. And you know, look, this is at the zenith of David's political career. He is at the top of his game. He has conquered everybody. There's nobody else left to conquer for David, okay? He has capped. he has, oh boy, he has conquered Jerusalem and made it his capital city. All of his enemies are at bay. In fact, they're paying him gold and silver uh, and precious stone tribute every year. Money is rolling in for David. He's at the top. This would be like the Ronald Reagan era, you know, for conservatives. How can it get any better? You know, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the greatest symbol of God's presence, is in the middle of Jerusalem. Everybody is worshiping. All the enemies are held at bay. David is finally recognized by all 12 tribes as the true leader of Israel. He is at the top. There's nowhere else left to go for him. In other words, listen, he doesn't stand to gain anything from showing this kindness to Mephibosheth. In fact, this could damage and weaken this perceived uh, strength persona that so many political leaders have. It's like, really? you got a cripple man sitting at your table? That's the laughing stock. He's one of your advisors? Sitting at the king's table was a big deal, okay? Humongous deal. You were basically one of the king's advisors. You would never have to worry. You were cared for for the rest of your life. And yet, out of the clear blue sky, this invitation came from David. This love originated. You know, I'm told that when Alexander the Great had conquered every known land um, in the known world at that time, that he wept because there was nowhere left to conquer. But David didn't weep. You know what David did? He looked for people to shower with blessing. That's what God does. God has such an abundance of grace and mercy. It's called wealth. It's called riches. He showered us with the riches of his grace. What a picture of that this is. So that's the first thing. Covenant love, it seeks us out like it did Mephibosheth. And here's the second thing. Covenant love shocks us. Shocks us. 
Now again, when that knock at the door came, what do you think that Mephibosheth was expecting? He's expecting, this is it. I knew this day would come. David found me. He found me and my life's over. My life is forfeit. And he's going to kill me and I deserve it. That's what I deserve. It's what I expected. The day finally came. The hammer finally dropped. So I don't know how far Lodabar was from Jerusalem, but can you imagine the trip? He shows up at the kingdom, and instead of getting uh, executed, he gets promoted. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you got called in your boss's office, and you expected to get terminated or fired, and you got promoted. You know, every time you see... No, it probably never happened to anybody, did it? <laughs> Anytime you've ever seen this or experienced this, when you are expecting judgment and maybe even deserving judgment, when you get pardon, when you get grace, friends, that's a miracle. And there's something that happens when that takes place, when you experience that, that is so thrilling, so wonderful, um, so astonishing, so radical, that it does something to you. It changes you. It empowers you. That's what happened to Mephibosheth. I can remember when I was a kid and, and my parents, uh, we had rules in our home. My parents actually spanked us and I'm glad they did or I probably wouldn't be up here today. I'd be in a jail somewhere. Um, and every spanking I ever got, I deserved it. Um, but every now and then, it was rare, but every now and then, my dad would surprise us and he would show us mercy. But we wouldn't know it because my dad, he likes to trick us, you know. And one night, I don't remember what I was doing. I was doing something naughty. I was in my closet. I think I had cleared out all the clothes and thrown them in the floor and gotten all my toys out, and I wanted that to be my house. Um, so I had cleaned out the closet and put my, my bedspread in there and pillows, and I was hanging out there and playing, and my dad opened the closet door, and I was like, ah! <laughs> and my dad said, all right, buddy. He said, I'm going to go get my belt. Um, he said, you stay right here. And he went and got his belt and came in the room and he closed the door, and all the other kids were usually listening, you know, to hear how it went down. And I remember my dad saying, stooping down and looking me in the eye and say, son, I'm not going to spank you right now. I'm like, who are you? Who, what is going on here? He said, I'm not going to spank you. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to show you grace. He said, but I don't want your brother and your sister to know, so we're going to play a little game. We're going to pretend, okay? He said, I'm going to take this belt, and I'm going to hit the bed really hard, and I want you to yell out. Now, that's not how we always got spanked, but I thought, okay, good deal, man. And so my dad took that belt, and I think he either popped it or he hit the bed, and I yelled out, and I think we put some water on my face and messed my hair up, and I don't know, that may sound silly to you, but I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. How close I felt to my father, because he showed me grace. He showed me mercy. Instead of punishing me, he pardoned me. That did something to my relationship with him, and it's always a miracle when that happens. Always a miracle. David had nothing, absolutely nothing political to gain to show generosity to some outcast, banished cripple who was an enemy um, to the throne. But he did. And listen, didn't Jesus say this? Didn't he say, whenever you throw a feast, don't invite the people that are wealthy, that are your friends, that are powerful, and they'll pay you back? He said, no, invite the people that are lame, that are blind, that are crippled, that are sick. And then you'll get repaid at the resurrection. That's what Jesus said. David's compassion was generous. It was extravagant. And it was uncalculable. I mean, listen, David had never really met Mephibosheth for 15 years. How did he know? This may have been a threat to his kingdom. He may have brought a dagger underneath his cloak. He didn't know. This was a radical risk that David took. 
And I'm not saying that God takes a risk in saving us. I'm just saying the nature of covenant love is that it costs you something. Covenant love costs you something. You know, whenever we have, I did a wedding yesterday and was talking about this. Whenever two people unite in holy matrimony and they exchange vows, that is profound. That should never be a trivial thing. I don't believe at any wedding. That's profound because you're basically looking at the other person and you're saying, look, no matter what happens, I'm staying. No matter what happens, I'm here. You never have to worry about me abandoning you. That's why those vows, what's, what's it say? Sickness and in health, good times and in bad, for better, for worse, um, and all the other stuff. Um, it means I'm not going anywhere. Hey, listen, we could be going on the honeymoon and we have a tragic accident and you're a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. But covenant love being at the center and not my needs being met means I'm not going anywhere, even though it's going to cost me dearly. That's the kind of love that David is demonstrating here. And it's just a small window into the kind of love that God shows us in Jesus. You know, people sometimes are, they say, you know, we don't ever need to talk about God's judgment. We don't ever need to talk about his wrath. We just need to talk about his love. And my response to that is this. Are there some churches who focus way too much on the judgment of God and the wrath of God? Yes. If that's all you ever talk about, that's not good news. I mean, we're supposed to publish good news, right? But listen, knowing what God saved you from enhances the good news, right? If we never talk about God's judgment, we never mention his wrath, then what kind of cheap love are we talking about here? Because I serve a God whose love for me actually cost him something. Because somebody had to absorb that wrath. Somebody had to take the arrow. Somebody had to swallow the debt and absorb it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment all of us deserve because we're all outsiders. We've all been banished. None of us deserve a place at the king's table. And that's what's so shocking and surprising is, listen, David didn't just invite Mephibosheth into the palace and say, look, this is awkward. This is weird. I want to have pity on you. I feel sorry for you. So I'll tell you what, kid, I'm not going to knock you off. Go back to Lodabar. You'll never have to worry another day in your life about me being a threat to you, okay? You can just be a slave and I'll tolerate your meager existence as one of my servants. That's not salvation. That's every other religion in the world. That ain't Christianity. No, what did David say? He said, look, you're moving into the palace. You're moving into Jerusalem. You're leaving the nowhere land. You're leaving the land of no pasture. And you're going to sit at this table and you're going to live like the son of the king that I've made you. And you're never going to be in want again. There's nothing that you're ever going to lack. What would that do to you? What would that do to you if that happened to you? Put yourself in the story because you're in there. What would that mean to you? Would that, would that secure you? Would you feel like this radical security and love and affection? Couldn't you weather just about anything if that were to happen to you? It has happened to you. And this is nothing. <laughs> this is nothing compared to what God has actually done for us in Christ because we were slaves and he made us sons. He's the friend of sinners. He drew near us. He adopted us. You know what the Bible actually says? We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. You know what that means? We're going to reign with Christ forever. I mean, if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. How can I go from being one of God's enemies to reigning with him? Like in the back of the chariot, like a little kid with a sword going, let's go get him, God. I mean, that's the picture. We're like a kid sitting in the lap of Christ as he's on his throne reigning with him. We have been blessed, Ephesians says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't happen apart from Christ Jesus. Because we're in Christ, every spiritual blessing that exists is ours. 
That may sound like prosperity gospel to you, but it's not. That's biblical gospel is what that is. Every spiritual blessing there is to be had, God gave it to us. And we are seated with Him. I mean, it would be one thing to sit at the table of a mighty, powerful king. I mean, we all have people that when we were little, you were in their presence, man, you felt safe. I mean, for me, that was my dad. We had some crazy dogs in our neighborhood, and I can remember we had a big yard, and if I was outside playing ball and my dad wasn't in the yard, I, I went inside because I, I felt security and safety with my dad being there. He would always run out and yell <laughs> something, something like, get on out here, or something like that. And those dogs would yap, yap, yap. I felt safe. I felt secure. And listen, how pale of a comparison is that to belonging to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Oh, man. So where was I at? What part of the outline? Sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, this was shocking. Yeah, he expected judgment. He expected to get whacked. And David said, no, not only am I not going to whack you, uh, you're going to be one of my own. You're entering my family. It's not a criminal family. It's not a mafia. You're a made man, but not that kind of made man, okay? You don't ever have to worry again. You're always going to be with me. He said always. In fact, it's interesting in Hebrew, in this passage, five different times, five different times, verses 7, 10, 11, and I think 13, um, the narrator says, and he will eat with the king at his table. You're like, but he's a cripple. It doesn't matter. The tablecloth is going to cover his lameness. The robe of Christ's righteousness covers all of our sins. Don't we all, don't we all have this fear like, I don't belong here. There's not, there's not really room at the table for somebody like me. If God really knew who I was and what I was like, he would never let me dine with him. Friends, you don't understand. You're diminishing. You're, when you think that way, you are diminishing the power and the value of the gospel. Christ has, has pardoned us from all our iniquities. He's cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness, the Bible says. And listen, that does something to us. Listen to this. This is a story that just um, blew me away. Gary Ridgway was the Green River Killer. You remember this guy in the 80s and 90s? He was one of America's most notorious serial killers, responsible for the deaths of nearly 100 women in the 80s and 90s. He was finally captured in 2001, and when he was put on trial, the victim's relatives were all given the chance to express the pain and the grief that his crimes had caused. Now, what do you think they did? This, and I'm not, I'm not saying it was wrong, okay? Because I have children, God forbid something happened to them, and they caught the person that did it, and it was malicious. I cannot stand here and tell you as a pastor that I'm going to go shake his hand and hug his neck and issue, you know, mercy. I don't know what I'll do. God help me. You pray for me if that ever happens, okay? Because I can understand some of the things that happens in courtrooms with the parents and the friends of victims, but you can imagine, you can use your imagination and, and think about what happened. Um, they all had the chance to express the pain and grief that his crimes had caused. He sat there stone-faced as family member after family member berated him. They called him an animal. They told him that he would burn in hell. They wished him an agonizing death. And then the, fa the father of one of his victims, a large man with a white beard, not Santa Claus, somebody else, <laughs> approached the podium and measured... Yet warm voice, he said, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here who hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, what God says for me to do, to forgive you. And I want to tell you that you, sir, are forgiven. Ridgway immediately started crying. Now, keep in mind, he had sat there stone-faced. 
The entire time when all these people paraded in front of him, called him a dog, worse than a dog, I hope you rot in hell, I hope you burn, I hope you suffer. He sat there stone-faced and motionless, and people said there was no remorse. And then this father comes by and says, I don't hate you, I forgive you. And listen to this, Ridgeway immediately started crying. And later that day, now he already knows he's, he's a goner. There's nothing he can do to get out of his predicament. Ridgeway immediately started crying and later that day gave his first statement that showed any remorse. And then this person who wrote this said, the, the veil of judgment dropped and for the first time he could see what he had done. Forgiveness accomplished what judgment, even the most just kind of judgment, could not accomplish. Do you see the difference? When you show somebody mercy and you show somebody grace and you extend forgiveness to somebody, that fundamentally changes it transforms their heart. It softens what was once hard. And listen, that love spills over. Why do you think David was so magnanimous with Mephibosheth? Well, look how gracious God had been to David. I mean, David was on the run forever from Saul and a little bit later from his own son Absalom. And finally, God had put David on the throne, fulfilled all his covenant obligations and promises to David. And so what's David going to do in turn? He's going to find somebody else to show mercy to. That's the way it works, guys. When we're outsiders and we become insiders, we don't view people as threats and enemies anymore, especially within the church. We don't look around the table and critique everybody sitting there. We are all partners in gospel. And God has given us diversity. We're all different. We're all gifted. Some people have strengths. Some people have weaknesses. That's the way the body operates. And listen, especially this changes the way that you see outsiders. You don't see them uh, as people to avoid. You don't see them as people in society to tolerate. You see them as the mission field. You want them to experience the same grace uh, and power that you experienced. I just can't, I, I, I want to meet Mephibosheth in heaven. And I want to ask him, dude, what was it like, man? Thinking that you were about to get axed. And then the next thing you know, you're at the table, man. And the most luscious spread of food is before you. That's salvation. To ask him, what did that do to you? It's amazing. Tim Keller writes this. He says, When we are brought like David with Mephibosheth, when we're actually brought into his presence and we fall on the ground feeling like we're ready to be smitten, we're adopted and we're empowered. And we find his service is perfect freedom and only his service is perfect freedom. See, that's the thing about grace. The shocking thing is, this is what people actually think. They believe there's a God and they know he's holy and they know he's perfect and they know they're not. They know they're guilty. They know they're condemned and they think, okay, and I know I need to give my life to Christ. I need to come and fall down and submit and surrender to him. But if I do, it's over. You know, I'll never have freedom. I'll have to surrender my autonomy and there's not going to be any joy and my life's going to radically change. It's going to be terrible. Well, <laughs> is that what happens? You know, there's a lot of people living under this pseudo freedom they think they have. They're just languishing, like I said earlier. If you want the true abundant life, didn't Jesus say that? In John 10, 10, I have come so that their life may be miserable and may be over. <laughs> That's not what he said, is it? He said, I've come so that they may have life more abundant. Jesus is like, why are you settling for mud pies in the slums when I've offered you a holiday at the sea? Why are you settling for that life? Lord, lift me up where I belong. That's what it's about, right? I got to sing at least once every sermon. <laughs> and here's the third thing. I'm sorry. Don't tell Sarah. I can only do it when she's in the back. 
Here's the third thing that this kind of love does. And I told Mark uh, Mailing earlier, he said, you got a lot of Old Testament scripture to read. And I said, man, there's some that you don't, haven't even seen yet i got to cover. What does this do to you? We've been talking about. How does this anchor you and secure you? Listen, this, this creates in you this resilience. You can weather anything. As long as you're with the king, it doesn't matter. If your health deteriorates, when I was standing over the, the bed of Eric Robinson with Joan and Don and, and Marissa and their family, we talked about this passage, and I said, man, what kind of security must Eric know to know he belongs to God? And that, listen, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You remember that list that God gave us in Romans 8? There is nothing, neither height, nor death, nor width, no trial, no sword, no famine. Nothing can separate you from God's love. There's nothing that's a threat to it. Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's the one that can condemn Nobody can condemn you. Nobody can steal you. Nobody can threaten you. You know what's included in that list? Cancer. If you are a child of the king, listen, cancer is called the shadow of death if it comes to its ultimate fulfillment and takes your life. But Eric, listen, Eric was translated into heaven. Do you think he's worried right now about cancer? He's looking around saying, what was that? What was it we called that again? Oh yeah, cancer. Yeah, that ain't up here anywhere. Oh, perfectly healed. That gives you resilience. And listen, when you're the person watching that person suffer, it strengthens you. And it draws you closer to God. That's what it does. That's the power of grace. I think I, I, I put a slide up here. Um, let's do the, do the next slide. I have no idea where we're at, but we'll go with it. What's that? Okay, yeah. Ooh, that's gory. Isn't it? You know who that is on the left? That is Vlad the Impaler. Have you ever heard the legend of Dracula? The legend was actually based on a, a real ruler in Romania. And he was a fierce ruler. And people were afraid of him. You know why? Because if you crossed Vlad, the impaler, that's what would happen to you. And I'm sorry, I know there's children in the audience. It would be a sharpened stake, like a little tree, a pine tree. And it would be inserted at the bottom and go out the top. So let me ask you a question. If you lived in Vlad the impaler's kingdom, would you be obedient? Yeah, would you be happy? No. In fact, it was said that Vlad the Impaler, he reigned for seven years of terror. And he was so arrogant and so bragged to his constituents. He said, look, I'm going to put a, a pure gold metal, um, what do you call it, drinking glass back then? Goblet, thank you. He put a goblet made of pure gold in the middle of the town square. And anyone there was allowed to use it to drink water from the well that it was sitting on top of. But nobody could move it. Uh, strict orders from Vlad. But you can go ahead and try to move it if you want to and see what happens. Uh, look to the right up there. So for seven years, nobody moved that golden uh, goblet in the town square. And to many people, that's quite an accomplishment. You know, I know a lot of people that, and I'm dead serious here, I'm not trying to be facetious, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to embellish this because I've been a Christian for a long time, and I meet a lot of people, and I read a lot of stuff, and I listen to a lot of messages. I think a lot of people, their obedience to God is, is a little bit parallel to why people in that city wouldn't move that goblet when they drink from it. I think they're scared to death of what God will do to them. If they ever fail, God forbid, to have a perfect prayer life or a perfect devotion life or witness or tithe, and that's what a lot of people think. In order to motivate people, you've got to scare the ever-living heck out of them. You do. And a lot of Christians do that. A lot of preachers preach that way. They think you're going to squeeze obedience out of people by scaring them. Well, I've got another story for you. Cue next slide. 
Oh, yeah, that slide. Um, there was a person who was in Northampton when the Great Awakening happened in the 1740s. And these are the two primary leaders of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield on the left, Jonathan Edwards on the right. And i got to find this because i got to read this to you, what one person wrote. Yeah, um, one man wrote this. Because there was such an outpouring of God's love and he was seeing people being transformed. People who were greedy became radically generous. People that were notorious liars and cheats became radically honest. Um, you know, there's a difference. When does a thief no longer become a thief? When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing, right? No, wrong. He's just taking a break. A thief is no longer a thief when his heart is changed and he's honest and he's generous. And that's the difference between the last slide that I showed you and this slide, people in this town. Uh, witnesses to the Great Awakening said that people underwent a radical change in that society, in that town. Bars were shut down. Prostitutes were no longer around. Everything radically changed. And one person wrote this. I hope I'm not talking too fast. It was the opinion of men that bags of gold and silver and other precious things might, with safety, have been laid in the streets and that no man would have converted them to his own use. Now, two different scenarios, two different leaders, two different powers at work. Because listen... A bag of gold in either city at any time would have stayed in the middle of the city, but for different reasons. Do you understand? Are you guys following me here? I don't want to lose anybody. You can scare somebody so bad that they'll do exactly what you tell them, when you tell them, and how you tell them. Um, that's not how God's grace operates. God's grace is so overwhelming, so astonishing, so incredible that it creates heart change when you actually want to be honest. You actually want to tell the truth. You actually want to serve in church. I talk to people all the time, and they're, fa they're facing um, serious issues in the church. They're like, Pastor Tommy, I cannot get people to tithe. I cannot get people to serve. I can't even get people to attend my stinking church unless the stars are aligned. And there's no barbecue on the beach or family get-together or little league game. They're like, so what in the world do you do? And I said, well, you know, you can preach a series on tithing. That's what most people will do and tell you that, you know, if you don't tithe, God's going to get it one way or the other and see this tithe scar. I didn't tithe one year and I had a wreck and I've heard all kinds of things that people do. Is that how God motivates us though? No. You know what the Bible says when God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling people to tithe? You know what he says? He basically says this. God, who is rich, became poor for our sakes, so that we may become the riches of God in Christ. And then he asked the people to contribute to the offering he was taking up for Jerusalem. And strangest thing happened, they did. <laughs> they did, not because Paul twisted their arm and threatened them uh, by dangling them like a spider over hell. No, because he reminded them of the gospel. When you dig deeper into the gospel, you dig deeper into your pockets to be generous, right? To the cause of Christ. That's how motivation works. Because there's a security there. There's this, listen, the gospel produces a humble confidence. You're at the table, man. You're in the presence of the king. So there's a boldness there. I'm friends with the king, but there's a humility there too. You know, you know what? I, don't, I, I didn't belong here. There was a time where I wasn't worthy to be here. It creates this humble confidence. You know that you're so sinful, Jesus had to die, but God loves you so much, Jesus was glad to die for your sake. That's what the gospel produces, and nothing else can produce that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Nothing else can produce that. That covenant love produces loyalty. It produces change. That's what it does. So, security. And, and I want to show you the next slide, too. I want to make sure that you get... Can you guys see that okay? 
Harder? I'm sorry. Okay. This is this passage, 2 Samuel 9. I want to show you what real security looks like. Because before, Mephibosheth lived away from the king, away from the kingdom. He was poor, he was isolated, he was alone, and he was afraid. And check out what King David says to him when he comes into his presence. First thing, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. He says, do not fear. There's comfort, right? There's comfort. Second thing he says, for I will show you kindness. There's grace. There's grace. Third thing, I will restore to you all the land of Saul. There's inheritance. We haven't even gotten to this part yet, have we? He gave him all of King Saul's land. I mean, Mephibosheth became an instant millionaire. Instantly wealthy, instantly powerful. And the fourth thing, he said, and you shall eat at my table always. That's community. Isn't that all the things that human beings are striving after anyway? We're all working of ourselves up into a frenzy, in futility sometimes, in vanity, trying to get all those things. And God has already offered all those things to us in Christ. Comfort, grace, an inheritance, a community. And the Bible says it's undefiled. And it's laid up in heaven waiting for you. There's no, no moth can corrode it or destroy it and no thief can steal it. It's been freely given to us in Christ. That's amazing. And man, there's so many other things I wanted to say. Just a couple of quotes here, okay? The promises of grace are not recorded in a bank book. I think that's a slide. Can we put that up? That's next. Yeah, the promises of grace are not recorded in a bank book. They do not rely on a doctor's diagnosis and difficulty cannot erase them. Brian Chappelle said that. That's what grace does. That's what grace accomplishes. And I wish, I really do wish that I had time to tell you a little bit later in the story of Mephibosheth, if you can give me two minutes, I can do it. Can you spare two minutes? All right, hallelujah. Just a couple of you said that. Thank you. So, so check this out. Um, fast forward the tape, okay? Mephibosheth is happy. He's at the king's table. He's, he's uh, enjoying the inheritance and the security, uh, but bad things happen. You remember King David? Uh, his son, Absalom, is a wicked son, and he tries to steal the throne right out from under um, his father's um, seat, I guess. He tries, to, he tries to usurp his father's throne, okay? And a lot of people are in lieu with Absalom, and they want David gone. And so people, you know, when he's, he's chased out of Jerusalem, and some people go with him, and some people don't go with him. And whenever he gets to the river to cross it, that takes you across from outside of Jerusalem and you're banished from the capital city, uh, amongst all the people who were numbered there with him, guess who's not there? Absalom. Absalom is not there. And instead, Absalom's servant, uh, Ziba, is there. And David says, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, oh, you know what? That worthless servant. He said, finally, finally, I'm going to get the inheritance from my grandfather, Saul, that was due me. And David says, oh, I see. Okay. Okay, well, that's nice to know. And so David is exiled and banished, but God turns the tables and Absalom is killed and David is restored to the king and he comes back into the capital city. Do you remember this? He comes back into the capital city and guess who is there waiting for him? Mephibosheth. And it says this. In fact, I'll show you the slide. Can we back up just a couple? Because I put the text up here. I want people to see it. That's okay. Uh, yeah, here it is. So this, this is Mephibosheth's answer to David. He says, Mephibosheth, dude, where were you? I gave you all your father's land. I gave you a place in my palace. And when my throne is usurped, you're in lieu with my enemy. And this is, now, now keep in mind, 
This is what grace does to us. All the loving kindness, the covenant love, the hesed that David had shown Mephibosheth. What did it do? This is what Mephibosheth said. He said, Ziba, his servant, he has slandered me, your servant, to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, I was going to die anyway. I needed to, you should have killed me a long time ago. I was doomed to die. And you have lavished your grace upon me. You've seated me at your table. And you seeing you again is like seeing the face of God. You're like an angel. So I don't care. Do whatever you want to me. And David said, and the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Well, that's, that's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, you at least get $500,000 from the million that you once had. But check this out. Now, again... This is what grace does to you. This is, this is what Mephibosheth said. Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question. Has grace operated at that level in your heart? I mean, this is, this is just the Old Testament. I mean, his security was tied to David. David might forget. David might die. David may break bad or something, you know. Anything could happen to threaten that security. But our security is not like that. But let me ask you a question. How is it at work in your heart? Is it, does it have that effect? You know grace changes the way you handle opposition? It handles the way that you're sinned against, how you treat the people that sin against you? I mean, if I would have been Mephibosheth, maybe I would be crippled, but let me at Ziba. Give me a sword in five minutes. Just turn your head. I'll take care of this guy, right? Uh-uh. And you know what? Whenever King David, I didn't put this up there, but whenever King David came back into the, into the kingdom, it says that Mephibosheth had neither cared for his feet nor trimmed his beard since the day that King David was exiled. And he had tried to go with him, but he was tricked, and Ziba left him at home. That's what grace does. Changes the way you handle opposition. It changes the way you suffer. And listen, it changes the way you handle prosperity too. Because you know, all this came from God. I'm not going to get puffed up about any of this. I'm just a wretched dog that he seated at the table and lavished me with grace, so I'm good. They can have everything. I talked to a guy not too long ago who was in conflict with a family member, and he was telling me, he said, Pastor Tommy, the grace of God has so anchored my heart. He said, me and, and, and my sibling, my brother, we used to fight over land. We used to fight over, they couldn't get along about anything. And he said, and then God just showed me his grace. And I went to my brother and I said, you know what, man, dude, this ain't worth fighting over. You can have all of this. I don't want any of it. It's yours. He said, just the look on his brother's face was like, what? That's what grace does. That's how it operates. So let me end with this. The king called Mephibosheth and he took the king's summons serious. And I want to tell you this. The king is calling you today. Maybe you haven't yet experienced this kind of lavish grace just poured out upon you. The king has summoned you. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to live like an outcast. You don't have to live like a slave. The king has invited you. He summoned you to have a place at his table and dine with him and his company forever. And you'll never have to suffer want or lack again, ever. Are you listening to his summons? Or is it too good to be true?